Would you join with me in a word of prayer? And gracious Heavenly Father, I am reminded of this morning in the passages before us that the power of the Gospel has such a strong effect. It comforts those who are disturbed, but it also disturbs those who are comfortable. And Lord, I, I pray that as we open our hearts to you, you might touch us in both ways. That those who come into this place and, Lord, in our time of worship might find the rich and wonderful comfort that comes from the one who loved us and and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. But also, as our hearts are open to you, Lord, we confess that we have become comfortable with the routines of our lives and even the routine that draws us into this place. And I pray that, Lord, you would stir us by your Spirit so that, Lord, our lives might be corrected to your will and that we might do that which you have made us to do and to be, the men and women of God. And this we pray, Lord, with hearts opened wide, We are yours. Use us, I pray. Speak to us, I pray. And all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. The journalist and reporter uh, William Poteet filed a, a, a fascinating story a few years ago during the breakup of the Soviet Union. As the Russian government was being reorganized, someone noticed that every day there was a sentry, an army guard, who was posted at a a particular point along the wall of the Kremlin for no particular reason. And, And when asked, no one could explain why he was there and why he had to stand there all day long, this sentry, this soldier. And thinking it had something to do with secret security, the officials hunted through the documents and discovered that in, in 1776, Catherine the Great had found the first flower of spring coming up in that spot. And seeing that little crocus breaking through, she had, she had made a command. She said, post a sentry here so that no one tramples that flower underfoot. And so for over 200 years, long after that little crocus had come and croaked, um, uh, long after the pavement had been laid, and, and, and every morning uh, a sentry would march out to that spot and would be posted to serve and to protect the memory of a flower, a tradition that had long since passed away. That's how traditions sometimes work, and and, and, and some of you know what it's like to have traditions in, in your own lives, uh, traditions at work and in, and in your school, and unfortunately, sometimes traditions within the church. History is littered with examples of religious behavior where faith has really become a, a matter of meaningless words and actions that have been hardened into irrelevant ritual that was once, at one time, uh, a celebration of life has now become a ritual of death. This morning, I I want you to return to me to the Gospel of Luke as we are are walking our way uh, to the cross. uh, And and as we come to chapter 11, we come to the big chill where 
these crowds that had been following Jesus are suddenly given a reality check, and by the end of the passage, we see that the, the forces of, of enmity are being turned toward him. And here in verse 37, Jesus confronts this principle of death, this ritual of death, with words of warning, and they are words of woe. Listen to the scene as it unfolds. It says, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and so he went in, and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Now, I I, I want to pause for a moment and set up the scene. This is not a matter of hygiene. This is not a matter of, you know, putting the stuff on the hands so that the germs will not be spread, nor that it is not an issue of hygiene at this point. You have to know that the Pharisees had particular practices that had suddenly been challenged. Now, you know the the, the name Pharisees. Uh, they, They get a bad rap in the Bible. Uh, and, and as a name, they, they come through history almost as a swear word. I was at a camp one time as a counselor, a Christian camp, and there was one young uh, boy who got so mad at another camper. He looked at him, and he just he couldn't quite find the right word, and he didn't want to swear, and he looked at him, and he said, You, 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 you Pharisee! <laughs> well, well, that's telling him. You know, that's really, you know, that's going to leave a mark. You know, uh, the, the Pharisees, you know, really, you know, uh, get a bad rap in the Bible. But the fact is, they, 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 were, they were people who really took their religion quite seriously. And as bad as we necessarily would believe. And on the surface, taking your religion seriously is not really a bad thing. Except the, the, they had gotten to the place where they had calculated the rules so carefully that their faith had been reduced to an endless stream of rules and regulations and rituals. And like computers, their their brains then began to spit out page after page of pre-programmed moral calculations as they walked through their days. Don't do this, do that. Uh, Follow me and you're in. Disagree and you're out. And they had become legalists with really no sense of humor. It had been surgically removed. Max Licato writes, he said, legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden. It makes my opinion your boundary. Makes my opinion your obligation. No disagreement and no dialogue allowed. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, with their rules, defined the reality of religion. And Jesus, when he came, set them straight. At first, I read this passage, and I wonder, why, at first, would a Pharisee invite Jesus over for dinner? To enjoy the pleasure of his company? The enlightenment of his teaching? To enjoy just having Jesus there? If you put your finger on verse 37 and jump ahead with your eye to verse 45, you'll find that, in fact, that invitation was to set up an ambush. For there were a group of legal experts who were also then gathered at the table. And from the moment Jesus stepped into the house, their hungry eyes sized up everything that he would say and he would do. One writer has said he, had, he may have been invited for dinner, but he was there as the main course. Well, Jesus knew this. And as the writer continues, he knew exactly how to give them a case of indigestion if he was going to be the main course. 
So look at verse 38. The Pharisee was surprised that he, Jesus, had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now some of you may notice, and and I, I added a word here, in the New American Standard Version, it picks up on the fact that this was not a matter of personal hygiene, as I said before. There, there was another word used in, 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 in Aramaic and in Greek to describe the simple washing of hands. That's not the word that appears here. The word was used to describe a ceremonial ritual where before the meal and in between then each course of the meal, the hands would be washed in a very special and symbolic way. One commentator, Alfred Edersheim, says that the practice actually came from the temple where the priests would put on a show of ritual cleansing as a part of worship. And and the the Pharisees apparently thought that was pretty cool and decided then to do it, probably because it made them feel like priests. And here, while they're lining up at the stone basin to put on a show for all to see, Jesus, with his invitation in hand, squeezes by and to the table, sits down, and is ready to eat. (laughs) It was just one one rule and and a single ritual. But with his action, Jesus brought down their entire system of symbolism like a house of cards. He pulled that card out and it all collapsed. Surprise! That's the reaction we find here. Jesus didn't even need to question. Just to look at their faces would just be enough. In verse 39, then the Lord said to him, Now then, now that I've got your attention, let me tell you something. You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Now let me see if I can simplify this and explain then for the rest of the sermon. Context is really going to be important for this uh, culture uh, of the day is going to be really important to understand everything that flows from this point. But let, let me see if I can simplify this at this point. Their surprise was authored by the question, don't you know the religious thing to do? And his response was very blunt. I know precisely what religion is for. You catch that? Don't you know what religion is and ritual is to do? And he says, I know what religion is for. For This is what God intends for you and now for me as well. In this time and this day, our lives are to be lived out as a blessing for others. And by the power of the cross today, God intends us to, to be freed from a life of sin by the power of the blood. And God intends us to to be cleansed from within by the power of the resurrection. And he intends to fill us with the power of his spirit. But he also has given us a purpose to give what is inside out to all as a blessing to all around. To those who are living under the poverty of sin. And that is the substance of faith. That is what religion is for. It is not to be blessed or to be recognized, but it is in fact to be poured out as blessing to others. And, that, and the legalism of the Pharisees was anything but a blessing for others when you think of it. In fact, you might even say that they made a religion a curse. And without, without taking a breath, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisee! 
And that word woe, spelled W-O-E, was literally a deadly judgment. In a court of law, when a judge had finally arrived at a guilty verdict that would demand the most severe sentence, he would look the accused in the eye and deliver his ruling with one word. He would look at them and say, woe, 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 which is even more strong, uh, it was even stronger than the word guilty. (laughs) The consequences of guilt come into play. Woe, woe, woe. And with that word, it was not just an expression of guilt, but also of deep sorrow and also of doom. And if you were to hear that of yourself, you would really have to say another word that sounds very similar. Woe. <laughs> Woe. I need to pay attention to what has just been said. And from this point on, six times, Jesus then issues judgment upon the Pharisees. And with each, he reveals the mistakes that they have made. Now, most commentators I've read read these six woes with some relish, as if Jesus is just pointing out how evil they were. And as I've studied this, I've discovered something else. In each case, the Pharisees had taken a godly rule, something that was at first very good and really defined the best of religious behavior, but over time it had calcified and had become legally a a, a bent rule into a formal ritual until it ended up meaning something completely different. And something absolutely wrong. And when he says to them, woe, Jesus is really in reality pointing the way back home. Saying, whoa, stop where you are. Turn around and look and see where you can go. Let me correct the wrinkles that you've made of the garment of faith. So as we study these these judgments, rather than going negative, I I, I don't feel comfortable with that. I'd rather write in this as a positive rule. This is what we should be doing. What we are to do with our lives actually then becomes a revelation of our faith. And so the first woe appears in verse 42. Look at it. It says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You you should have practiced the latter without, without leaving the former undone. Now, as I said... It it takes a little bit of context in history and culture to understand what he's saying here. The tithe in the Old Testament was more than just one offering. We always think of the tithe as just one offering. In fact, there were three tithes that were required of really, you know, uh, serious Jews in the Old Testament. Three of the tithes that were called for by God. And, And there was one that related to crops. And it covered things like what we have here, the mint and the rue and the herbs, and was actually intended as a tithe, as a way to feed the hungry and to provide for the poor. You you, you get this picture from the book of Ruth, where Ruth and the widowed Naomi go into Boaz's farm fields to gather up the grains and the food after the harvest. That was part of Boaz's tithe that was left intentionally for the poor. God ordered it, yes, but not for himself but for others. And, and that idea of being a blessing for others was lost to the Pharisees. They would carefully measure out the herbs as an opportunity to show God how careful they could be, and that would be as far as they would go. 
And, and Jesus says, forget the show. What is at stake here is the love of God. And the rule is, don't get lost in the details. Your life is to be lived as a blessing for others. You've got to serve someone. We'll create a boundary to that service. Pour it out to someone. Tithing to God should produce a blessing for others. And the question that, that, that should be asked all the time is, does anyone benefit from my obedience to God? And can I name names of those who I have intentionally sought to bless? So that was a woe number one. I know some of you are sitting there going, oh my goodness, he's going to have a six-point sermon because there's six woes. Let's go to six, uh, woe number two. Woe number two in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Now this also may be a little bit hard to understand. The joke in most churches <clears throat> is that the most important seats, the front row, is a place to be avoided. Feel free to use this verse next time you tell people to come forward there. I, you know, that's, that, that, that's, and, and the joke is that the best seats are really in the back. But the way the synagogues were designed in Jesus' day, the front seats, as it's translated in the New American Standard Version, or the most important seats, actually faced the congregation and were reserved by the most distinguished guests. And the Pharisees would elbow their way uh, to those seats so that when they sat down, everyone would see them and, and, and see how sincere they could look when, when it came time for worship and, and, and how passionate they were and how, how pious they were when the Word of God was read and, 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 and could see them when they prayed. They would grab the spotlight by going to those seats. What a tremendous contrast that is to Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 20, he said, Whoever wishes to be great among you shall become what? Your servant. What is the rule of fellowship that, 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 that should be inscribed with, with, with any body of, of faith? Uh, I, I love the little sign that was scratched. Some of you may remember Our Gang, the television show, years and years ago. I am old enough to actually remember that the little rascals they had their clubhouse and they had a little sign on the on their clubhouse door and i i think somehow this should be inscribed in the houses of faith and the sign governed their membership and it said this no one act big no one act small everyone act medium not bad eh woe to you if you forget it That we're together. And then woe number three, verse 44. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. Whoa. This one is really huge. And it is tough. And it does take a little bit of explanation. It is so tough, in fact, that by the end of it, one of the Pharisees actually said, ouch, or something like that. In verse 45, teacher, he said, when you say these things, you insult us. It's like, this one hurts. Let me explain why it would hurt so much. You see, according to a Jewish custom, just before the arrival of the, of the large crowds that came to the, 
to Jerusalem for all the different feasts, the city workers would actually be sent out into the valley, uh, to the graveyards of the valley, and they would wash, whitewash the, uh, the graveyards. They would whitewash them that were found on the Mount of Olives. And the reason was, well, uh, was that those graves would become clearly visible and no one would, would be given the, had the mistake of contacting the graves. Because if they contacted the graves, they would defile themselves and render themselves ceremonially unclean. And the insult here is that the Pharisees, rather than... Then, then, then bringing a message of salvation to the people and, and do something that would rescue from them their, from their sins were actually, uh, as unmarked graves, contaminating them with their touch, with greater decay and death. Their, their biggest concern was that people would follow the rules that would make them look good rather than encounter a God with a heart of repentance and then discover with that God the forgiveness that would cleanse them from their sin. I'm sure you've heard the phrase rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. That is what they were doing. And those who followed them didn't realize that that, that they were only getting closer to death with all of the different arrangements of rules on that deck. And I guess the rule that flows from this is, is is a reminder that every single one of us carries with our faith. We are on a mission of salvation. And everyone carries that. Every single one of us who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord carry that with our faith. We are on a mission of salvation in our homes and in our work and in our communities and in our world. Salvation is far more important than ceremony. So the question is, who is God going to use you to rescue Woe number four, verse 46. I have these principles listed in the outline. It's it's about forgiveness, not guilt. In verse 46 we read, Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and yet you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. There was no greater burden imposed by the Pharisees than that of guilt. Legalists thrive on guilt. They they, 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 they use condemnation, criticism, and nagging. And, and the sharpest object on their body is their finger. <laughs> the original PowerPoint. And rather than lifting their finger to help someone, they use their finger to point with guilt. And they were skilled at it, but... But it is such a contrast to what we hear of the heart of, the, of our faith. In Galatians chapter, one, six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, if any of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, being a blessing to others. You've got to serve someone. Bring that healing of forgiveness and the richness of faith. What's the rule? Well, it's about forgiveness and not guilt. Over my years in ministry, I have been overwhelmed by how much hurt there is within the church being brought in each and every week. 
And I have to wonder, is, is our fellowship actually helping to ease that burden? To lift a finger so that a person could find the forgiveness or walk away pressed by the guilt. That's reality number four. Uh, reality number five, woe number five, verse 47. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your fathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Now, this one really does get complicated. So follow me closely. Trying to impress people, the, the Pharisees were constructing monuments to the dead prophets. And yet, ironically, none of them were building their lives on what the prophets had taught. They were honoring them with their actions, but they were dishonoring them with their heart. The message of the prophets was really one of repentance, of presenting God a broken heart and a humble confession. And it was not a popular message. In fact, it was so unpopular that the religious authorities in each and every one of those ages killed them. And here, Jesus said that the Pharisees are just finishing up the job, burying the prophets by ignoring them. Why? Because their hearts harbored that same pride that refused to be broken. Yet the rule remains. What is it that God desires? The Old Testament rang that bell clearly and loud so that we could even hear it now. The sacrifices of God, we read in Psalm 51, verse 17, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That, we read, God will not despise. Woe to you if you forget it. Reality number six, one final woe. (laughs) In verse 52, it says, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, but you have hindered those who are entering. One of the things about the Bible is that it is so plain, so understandable that anyone can read it, and so clear that the simplest of us can understand I mean, it says in, 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 in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and He's useful then for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And yet, some want to make it a book of riddles that only they can explain. Oh, the Bible is, is a wonderful thing to study, but beneath it all, the truth in, contained within the Bible is purely simple. I'm, I'm sure you have heard the story of the German theologian Karl Barth, one of the most brilliant men in the history of the church. As a theologian, he was asked to reveal one time what was the most profound truth that his study of the scripture had revealed. And he paused for a moment before the reporter, and then he began to sing a simple song, a children's song. Jesus loves me. This I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. How profound is that? When everything is said and done, that is the simple message that rings true from the Scriptures. There's a whole world that needs to hear it and then to enter into this love of God. And what Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, let's get back to the purpose that God has for you in your life and for us in our fellowship. And so we have here before us six woes, and each one of them strip a layer of lies away that we've actually learned to love in our own comfort. And in verse 53, we read that when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege them with questions. A corner had been turned. He was no longer necessarily the popular one who was going to receive uncritical acclaim. The criticism would begin to grow. And they opposed him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. It's interesting because when you read in that passage, the word for fierce here in the Greek is, is, is the word dinos, which literally means terrible, vehement, and violent. And it is, in fact, the root of our word dinosaur, which literally means a terrifying lizard. Uh, one commentator is right, has written that at this point, their secret was out. Jesus had stripped them of their silken piety. I love that and expose their scaly reptilian souls. So they would retaliate, and in every city they would stalk him, hungrily striking at his words to distort and use them against him, and only his death would satisfy their taste for blood. The raptors were released. And I suppose now coming to the end of this message, it comes down to a very practical application, which really... I have to count on that the Holy Spirit might be working in your heart so that there might be a reaction, the disturbance of the comfortable. It's it's an issue of how your heart will take this in. And and as I I think of that, I'm reminded of a a principle that I heard one time where someone likened the human heart to one of two elements, either clay or ice. And that exposure to the sun will reveal the necessary nature of those elements. That exposure to the sun, when when brought to the clay, will only harden it into rock-like rigidity. Or, if your choice is to have a heart of ice, the exposure to the sun will begin to melt it and soften it and reshape it. And allow it to flow. So the question is, what heart do you have? What heart are you willing to to put into the hands of the God who created you? 
Are you, are you being called to account by Christ at this point, saying, whoa, and returning to Him and laying your heart before Him? The psalmist put it all into a prayer that we, we might take to heart right now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 22 and 23. To pray that prayer takes a brave heart. So would you pray together with me? Search us, O God. You already know our heart, but help us to know the heart that is within so that we might offer it to you. Forgive us, Lord, should there be any offensive way. Lord, calm us even as we have anxious thoughts. And lead us now, Lord, to that place which is the way everlasting, knowing that 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 is Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we come to you, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, humble at heart, Lord, eager to be blessed by you, but Lord, even more eager in the economy of heaven to become blessings to one another. I pray this, Lord, with all of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.